Hello, everybody. Welcome back to Mental Health TV. Really lovely to see you with us tonight. Um, tonight, we're going to be talking about conscientious objection in mental health nursing. So it'll be a really interesting topic, and we'd love to hear what you think about it. So before I introduce you to our fantastic guests, let me come across to Dave briefly so that he can show you how you can join in, how you can ask questions, and let us know what you think. Dave? Yeah, thanks, Nikki. Hi, everyone. As always, you've got a couple of options to join in. Uh, the first is on Facebook Live. So obviously, you're watching the video. If you just head towards the right of the screen, you'll see that there's a text box where you can add your comments, questions, and you can look at what any what everyone else is saying on Facebook. The other option you've got is to have Twitter open as well uh, and just pop us a tweet. If you include MHTV in that tweet with the hashtag, we'll see it. We'll be able to bring it into the conversation tonight. But as always, without further ado, straight back to Nikki. Yeah, and let me introduce to our fantastic guest. So first we've got Mick. Mick, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Hi, I'm I'm Mick McKeown. I'm a mental health nurse academic. Um, I work at the University of Central Lancashire and I'm an active trade unionist. I'm interested in, in workplace democracy and democracy, or latterly called co-production between um, practitioner staff, service users, survivors and refusers of, of services. Fantastic. And Jonathan, can you tell us a little bit about yourself too? Yes, hello, I'm Jonathan Gadsby. I'm technically a research fellow at Birmingham City University. I'm a mental health nurse. I spend a lot of time teaching, which I really love. Um, what can I tell you about myself? Um, one of my interests throughout my career has been about voice hearing, although that's not um, something we'll be perhaps so directly talking about today, um, but that that's often the kind of guys in which people meet me or conferences or kind of my tribe, I suppose. But uh, yeah, that's me. All right. So, and I don't mind who answers this, but just to get us the ball rolling so that we know what we're talking about. What are we, when we're talking about conscientious objection in, in mental health nursing, what exactly do we mean? Well, I'm glad you asked that because we mean something quite specific. Hmm. Um, yes, we, we, Mick and I contend, and I don't, it's not actually, I don't think that controversial, um, that um, there's a couple of things that have been going on in nursing. One is that we've been required to become accountable professionals who um, are able to be held accountable for decisions that they make. Uh, it's not good enough for us to do what we're told, uh, although smoothly following policy is something, of course, that our our managers would like us to do a lot, but nevertheless, we're not supposed to just do what we're told. We're supposed to be accountable, be able to give a rationale for the decisions we make. You know, that's something that's been growing over decades. Uh, you know, a profession in our own right is something that was very much, um, uh, well, it felt, I suppose, a bit preached from the front of every lecture that I went to when I was doing my training in, in, in the 90s. Uh, so on the one hand, we've got that. On the other hand is the rise of the degree level education. And the NMC are quite clear about what the purpose of that is, is to turn us into critical thinkers. And that's good because universities are quite clear about that too. You look at the marking schemes that um, student workers assessed by, especially what we call level six, which is your mm -hmm. third year. Uh, you don't pass unless you can think critically. Um, critical thinking means a number of different things. It's always interesting to talk about what people mean by it. Looking at things from every side of the story, not assuming that just because something is the way it's been done, that that's necessarily the right way, and exploring and examining 
how valid ideas are, I suppose, might be. So we've got these two very similar things that have been going on. And in that context, it seems to Mick and I that it is inevitable that students, uh, student mental health nurses, especially as they get towards the third year and they're required to look in that kind of debt, will start to wonder about certain things that they're asked to do. And it's not really just our contention, it's really driven from them as well. This business of forced pharmaceutical interventions is a big deal. They notice quite rightly that it's not something that happens across all four fields of nursing very much, but it does happen in mental health nursing. It's something that separates us out. So it's a kind of particular moment that seems to be jar against the values and practices of nursing in general. And it's that that we have uh, kind of focused on. Does that does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. And it's an interesting one, is that? And correct me if I'm wrong, because I probably am. So the only other the only other time that nurses can insist that medication is taken is for some public health issues when it's a matter of public safety. I think that's the only other time. All the other fields right. don't have the ability option expectation that they will insist that a treatment regime is followed and insist forcibly because there's a big difference isn't it between i might have watered down when i said insist it's a bit more than insisting isn't it it's actually forcibly medicating people sometimes so you've said about this idea that it's um it's a it's a critical responsibility and a responsibility of professions to be able to think why how does it come in as an issue of conscience then because that takes it in a slightly different direction I come in then and obviously hand over to Jonathan as well because I'm sure he's got something to say on this but yeah. I mean to, to just extend the I mean we're really talking about you know what what is this thing con- conscientious objection and how does it relate to to mental health nursing as a, yeah. an aspiring profession and I think there's something about um forced pharmaceutical treatment yeah. that is even more of an issue than the more general things that that nurses might and others might object to in in psychiatric services so we you know nurses are legitimately allowed to compel people into services mm-hmm. and keep them there against the will so compulsion mm-hmm. and there's various other forms of, of coercive care which is you know arguably a an oxymoron, isn't it? But but within the legal frameworks that, that we work in, that you know, the, these things we are able legally to um to enforce and practice mm. compulsion and coercion. But we've honed in on forced pharmaceutical treatment as a special case of coercion, and arguably, arguably the thing, the aspect of mental health nursing practice that is most objectionable. So if you have something that's objectionable on a a moral basis, but there's probably more than a moral basis to this, but just in terms of values and ethics and and morality, there's something that one can object to. That becomes a matter of conscience when the nurse becomes disturbed or discomforted or even completely alienated from how they would like to see themselves or how they would want other people to see them. And I suggest that that more wholesome idea of a professional mental health nursing identity 
how we'd want to project ourselves and how we would want other people, including service users and their families to see us, would not be the person who's, you know, holding somebody down and, and injecting them with um, psychiatric medication. So there's this dissonance between how we'd want to present ourselves, how we're going to feel comfortable in our role, in our skin as, as mental health nurses, and some of the, you know, more tricky and challenging aspects, you know, root, almost routine aspects of, yeah. of the job. So it's it's that disturbance that creates, uh, uh, that moral disturbance that creates a, a matter of conscience. Yeah. And it's nested within a sort of whole wider set of being alienated from expectations of the job and the technologies yeah. of the job. Yeah. I, I agree with that. There's something very much about identity at stake here. But I also think there's one further element as well, which is that there's probably many further elements, but one is that um, we're presented with a conundrum that we can't resolve through evidence alone. And that's what makes us working, you know, that's what makes mental health nursing uh, a contested field. And this is what students learn when they learn to think critically about what we do. And so if you were to start asking some of the, we'll start using some of the language that we're encouraged to, what does the evidence say about this? Or what is best practice? You know, actually, it becomes unresolvable. Students become introduced to many of the brilliant writers who critique the manner in which pharmaceutical research happens, the the kind of models in which it is deployed and explained. And they, they see brilliant writers who um, produce highly scholarly work that leads them to be very troubled. It's not as simple as, as it sometimes or very frequently made out to be. And they don't know how to resolve that. Mm. And the reason they don't know how to resolve that is that I don't know how to resolve that. And Mick doesn't know it, and no one does. Mm. We have these impossible situations. The, some of the authors that I might mention, and, and, and perhaps even the one I might mention the most, although it's hardly as if she stands out on a limb, is Joanna Moncrief. Mm -hmm. You know, she is a psychiatrist. She works for the NHS. She um, has written extensively about pharmaceutical practices. She is a prescriber, mm -hmm. but she does not agree that what they do is correct an underlying problem that could be described as an illness. And so she rejects the idea that they should be called treatment or medication. And reading her book, uh, her most recent book, which was just uh, at the end of last year, or any of the wealth of papers that she and other critical psychiatrists, just the psychiatrists who produced, would be enough to make student nurses feel, well, how can I do this thing? And when it's so controversial, I can't resolve. I don't know whether she's right or not. How can I do this thing. You can't sort of only partly do it. You're either pinning this person to the floor against their will and everything that that involves. And let's, you know, let's name it, pulling their trousers down, injecting them with a substance in their buttock that they do not want and maybe screaming that they don't want. They may be describing this as an assault. And, uh, you know, so, so yeah, the point is, as Mick said, it's about identity. It's about positive, um, identity for mental health nurses about a, a moral injury question but it's also about this intolerable um intellectual problem that mm -hmm. can't be resolved by just 
more and more reading or I mean that certainly helps but um uh yeah it, it's it's not just an issue of evidence yeah mm. I think that's what I'd say mm. yeah so I mean obviously the first thing I'm sure you hear all the time is where does that lead if one person on a shift decides not to and you need that you need four people for a team how do, how do you how does that all work out and also do you have a duty of care to provide medical interventions for somebody who may need something but not want it? What were your yeah. thoughts on those things? Uh, well, I guess those are two things. Hmm. Um, can yeah. I take the first one and then any, is that okay? Order, the first one was then you're, you're already thinking hmm. quite rightly, hang on a minute, now I'm thinking about a shift. I've got Jonathan, I've got Mick, I've got Nikki and David, hmm. they're on today. Hmm. There's this going off, right? Hmm. What's going to happen then? Like if one, if if Jonathan or if David says, "No, hang on a moment, I've got a conscientious subject." Like this is going to be chaos, isn't it? Like, mm. and, and is it going to be unsafe? I mean, because we can't have somebody pulling out of this scenario and leaving their colleagues in the lurch. That's not good for their colleagues. It mm. might lead to a very unsafe situation in the ward. Mm. Could be, could be that. Or you might be thinking, um. Well, what if there's an agreement, right? But then it, it turns out to be quite unpleasant, like because it can, right? You know, the person mm. may, it may be felt that this will be okay, but the person really strongly and vocally resists in a way that's distressing to everybody. Mm. What would happen then if the nurse says, "Oh, now I'm not, I'm not comfortable with this"? Yeah. So, of course, these are the nightmare scenarios, and neither Mick nor I envisage mm. this. Right? That would be terrible, mm. absolutely terrible. No, we we strongly feel that if this right were to be um, included in the list of rights that nurses have towards conscientious objection, we haven't mentioned that they already actually have rights, conscientious objection, but just not this one. Mm. You should talk about that. Yeah. If it were to be included, absolutely, that couldn't happen for so many reasons. For example, it wouldn't take long before a group of service users would... Um, would describe would would sort of see this objecting person as being on their side and vilify the other nurses as being thugs and like this can't happen that would be terrible mm -hmm. so no we we in order for this right to be upheld it takes a team mm -hmm. take a team of proactive forward thinking discussing mm -hmm. nurses mm -hmm. well led well managed mm -hmm. um and um yeah that that would be a very poor outcome if uh, if 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 that kind of thing happened, mm. yeah, mm. we don't see it as um, supporting that at all. Mm. Yeah, I mean, just just to add to what Jonathan said, and maybe try and answer the other question, which is is equally tricky, mm. is we've we've also given some thought and written about this in you know more widely about you know the sort of system mental health system in which you would prefer to land a conscientious objection right and that would be like jonathan said a more optimum set of conditions around team working ideally a, a completely democratized structure now i know that's something else that isn't in our gift immediately but it is something that we can actually imagine so i think our paper on um because we're academics, we try to theorise this stuff as well as be very practical. And we theorised it around so-called abolition democracies. And, you know, put simply, these are sort of 
you know, a whole set of theories that go back to um, posing the questions of what happened once slavery was abolished and did people who were allegedly emancipated through slavery actually fully realise the benefits of that emancipatory process. And the jury is, is still out, really, hence Black Lives Matter and all this, you know, campaigning that, that's still current today. But, a, you know, a, a really brilliant, critically engaged activist and scholar, Angela Davis, in the States, was appalled by the abuses that went on in Abu Ghraib in prison in the Iraq war, yeah. some of which are not too dissimilar from the, the things that we're talking about. And the things that we're talking about have been referred to as forms of torture and inhumane treatment by people who know about these things, like UN rapporteurs on um, torture. So it's not completely dissimilar territory, and I, I will get to the point in a minute, but the, the abolition democracy is yeah. not as simple as saying, tear it all down. Mm. You know, sometimes that is the argument that you can make about some systems, but it isn't the argument that we've applied mm. here. We've even tried to be very particular about which aspects of a coercive system we want to actually mm. mess around with first and foremost, mm. which isn't to say we, we, we're going to neglect the other stuff, but maybe we're opening the space to think about the other stuff mm. by getting to the particular and what we prioritise first, which is forced pharmaceutical mm. treatment. Mm. But the real, for me and for, for us, I think the real objective of an abolition democracy is to get, to unpack the world that we're in so that we can begin to imagine different worlds where the thing that we're objecting to doesn't make sense from the new world perspective. So to get there involves a lot of education. It involves yeah. a lot of dialogue, democratic dialogue between the users of services and the people who, who provide them. Mm -hmm. It demands a system that's got resources in it. So these things that we object to are much more likely to happen at greater frequency when you have poor staffing levels and, and poorer yeah. other resources. Mm. So it's, it is a moral issue, it is an, an issue of individual conscience, but it's also a political issue and the political demands are bigger than just the right to a conscientious objection. Mm. But to assert the right to a conscientious mm. objection opens up the space to make some of these corollary mm. collect more collectivized and political demands. Mm. And the as, as Jonathan so rightly said, mm. the individual right to a conscientious objection means nothing unless there's a collective commitment yeah. within a well-informed team. And one of the really good points that's in the paper, and I can say this because it's Jonathan's point, he made this point, was that what we have is, is a sort of scholarly environment mm. where academics talk to each other about these things. But that discourse and dialogue is seldom heard where it really matters mm. in clinical and service environments. And we've got to ask the question, why is that? Some of it is people are just so busy just mm. catching the breath. Mm. But some of it is a matter of leadership mm. and yeah. what... Are leaders in mental health services innovators? Have they got some sort of, you know, activist, mm. disturbing type identity? Or are they 
just sort of being led within a in a sort of led themselves within a hierarchical system. And I'm not saying this to be critical of people who, who are in those positions, but I think we're missing the sort of critical space whereby this debate that we're having now mm. should be happening in the coffee rooms and ward spaces. It should be not just going on between nurses. It should mm. extend to the people who are using services, the people who are related to those people and, and the public at large. Because some of what drives, you know, coercive practices in in services, well, a lot of what drives it mm. is, is the idea that the public are fearful of the people who we want to um, and are paid to to care for and mm. that is often more often than not an exaggerated fear mm. as well um and it but it does drive prescribing practice and and some of these practices so you know what one of the cases that well, well a guy i've written with is who's used mental health services and has literally fought with staff within mm. them to mm. assert his, his rights mm. tells a tale of being absolutely cooperative with every aspect of the care including being detained the only thing he wanted to resist was medication and it got him in proper battles physical battles with staff and it's got him a reputation within services but one question is is why can't we stand off see see how this guy if we leave this fella alone, we've detained him, we've got him in a safe environment, we can talk to him, he's talking to us. Why do you have to force medication on him? Now, there's always a good clinical rationale, but if people are objecting, if the, if the patient is objecting, why can't the staff object to, mm. to actually following through on that? And I, and we, we hold that that goes for mm. even people who are completely uncooperative always round because it is a sort of moral issue and i think we go further to say as well that some of what we do which is ostensibly about making practice better like active reflection on the job or debriefings of critical incidents isn't always about it's meant to be about learning from what's happened but it isn't always about that maybe at least the secondary function of those processes if not the prime function is to allow the team to feel like they've done the right thing so we console ourselves that this isn't didn't make us feel good we may even have been physically hurt in the process the patient won't feel good they may have been physically hurt in the process as jonathan said there's this idea of moral injury more than just floating around so part of our debriefing exercise says well it was the last resort better of two evils you did the right thing, mate. There was nothing else you could do in these circumstances. We all back you up. And it's a consolation process as much as a, a learning I'm, process. I think this is really important what Nick what Mick is saying now. It's just that we already have the, the, mm. the objections that we have find these kind of um quirky and strange patterns that are already really well established. So, like, we find our greatest faith in the medical model after such instances. Actually, you'll you'll get a team of nurses that will be very happy to say how complex mental health issues are, how 
the doctor is a part of this picture, but have you have you met the family? You know, like all of these kind of nuances, you know, if I had to live where they lived, you know, we are very able to be bio, psycho and social mm-hmm. and kind of multifactorial in some settings. But if it seems that we have to do this thing, suddenly it's a straightforward case of illness, isn't it? And at the end of the day, they were ill and they needed the medication. Even at other times when we say this thing that we're giving has got so many side effects, it's almost intolerable or, you know, but we find our most simple faith at those times. Like, like Mika said, we say these things like no alternative and last resort, but actually we didn't offer it. There was no alternative offered that's really what we're saying but we you know so we we have these ways of protecting ourselves mm-hmm. and i think another way with which we protect ourselves many nurses start talking about the system right there's the mental health system and i'm not that nurse right you know not all nurses and we also say i'm working to change the system from within we create this separation between um, and this is in some ways very helpful to us but in some ways it's really twisted you know we're saying when i do good things it's because i am good when i do things which are not so easily described as good it is because the system is bad Mm -hmm. or we vote with our feet and we leave the wards there is an exodus from the wards in which these things appear to have their sharp end Mm -hmm. to the community Mm -hmm. i wasn't cut out for ward work or whatever it is but it's unsuccessful because firstly the rise of cto's Mm. secondly we have to get people readmitted and when we do we think of those ward staff mm. as the thugs that we unfortunately now have to introduce our our, our cared for service user to it's very divide it, it creates yeah. them and us these mm. problems because mm. we're not talking about them in a sophisticated way mm. because mm. there isn't leadership mm. um so this this problem of conscience mm. i would say mm. it's been there and it's created these slightly um, weird relationships and maybe maladaptive mm. styles of nursing yeah. forever. Mm. Um, and um, well. so, yeah, we... We are very forgiving of yeah. nurses, especially the ones who were doing a proper job and haven't already fled the system. Yeah. And I think... Oh, sorry, I was talking about myself. In every no, no, I, I definitely... Place, by the way. And I, I share that, you know, and... Mm. And I think part of this, you know, the flip side of this abolition democracy framework, mm. you know, framing of it, where you can actually try and do the thought experiment of mm. what would our practice look like if we were looking at it mm. from a lens that says what we're doing now doesn't make sense, can't make sense. The flip side of that is we can imagine, and we have already have examples of systems whereby different stuff happens or different stuff happens more often than not. And so this is the part of the paper that talks about the different geographies of forced treatment and how, you know, there's a, there's a law in Norway, for instance, that allows for at least some psychiatric spaces to be medication free. Yeah. There's examples going right back to the sixties of Philadelphia houses, Soteria model, um, other approaches that are either no medication or minimal medication. Now, they're not necessarily, well, they're not at all offered to every single person, but they do show in a sort of prefigurative way how you can establish systems, even small systems, where 
the norm is at least a little bit different, if not a lot different from, from our norm now. And even within ordinary acute mental health wards mm. or prisons or children's homes or whatever, yes. some of them use more of this forced medication than others, which says something about it not being a universal need. Mm. There are patterns mm. to this. And it shows that, you know, practice at the very least can change. Mm. So it could be that, you know, the the actual debate around a conscientious objection, even if it wasn't enacted, mm. could get us somewhere in terms of thinking through all of these, um, what what could be really quite startling observations that they up a bit to think differently mm. about our practice in the round. I'm getting some questions in. So, um I've got a DM from somebody who doesn't want to be named. That's fair enough. <laughs> Saying, um, um, I'm in I'm in the third year. I didn't even know I could object. What am I allowed to object to? So that's a bit of a failure of education there, I think. Um, so um what can nurses object to? What 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 things are covered already okay. under conscience objection? Well, if they go to the NMC code and the standards, they'll see um that they do have the right to object to two types of thing. Um, and this is all nurses, not mental mm. health nurses specifically, all nurses. And that is that they that nurses have the right to object to being involved in fertility treatment and in terminations. It's those mm. two effectively. So there's that covers some nuance around em embryos mm. and, and, and different things like that. They will also so that's it. That's it. Those two things: fertility treatment and termination. And you can you can perhaps see the kind of um, the legacy of, of the the religious le legacy, perhaps that that is included. They they might be surprised if they read those to to learn that although they themselves are allowed to object, it is their responsibility to find someone to do the work instead of them. Which, well, they might think I'm not quite sure like how how meaningful an objection that is if i have to ensure that the work happens anyway mm. and um one of the things that mick and i have discussed a lot is is that kind of clause we we mm. we don't think that that is a meaningful objection i mean the history of conscientious objection is bound up very much with the first world war mm. and um if you think about in terms of military service and the conformists, um, by which we mean people like Baptists, Methodists and Quakers mm. who who felt that they could not, in conscience, raise a weapon, mm. could not fight. Of course, many joined things like the Friends Ambulance Service mm. and things like that, uh, unbelievably moving and heroic work. Yeah. No one could possibly uh, describe that as cowardice, although many tried. Mm. But um, that this is another story. But you could you couldn't imagine saying, well, as long as I train someone up to go and fight instead of me, mm. then I've had my meaningful objection. Of course, mm. it doesn't that it wouldn't work. And so, um, we we do take issue with the way that the NMC has worded that. And what they've done Thank is you. they've just lifted it straight from medical norms because mm. that is how it's worded in medical documentation. Basically, just providing cover, have, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting as well in that mm. I think, though I, I'm not doubting people's, um, you know, sincerity of faith and, yeah. and, and I have to declare that, that I'm an atheist. 
but there are there are some problematics with those two categories of content and subjection in that they arguably begin to delimit mm. the choice of women to be autonomously in control of their own bodies. So it puts nurses in a in a tricky, another different tricky model position, I think, if people care to look at it that way. But we don't want to dwell on that because it's a whole other... Um, Absolutely. No, but I think yeah. it was a good question, though. Let's yeah. come over to David. David, what have you got for us that's come in? Yeah, so I've got a few questions that have come in. Uh, the first one, I don't know if you've kind of covered it already, but I think it's a good question. Uh, is someone that would want to consciously object not an appropriate person to work in the environment where they would need to consciously object? Or are they the best person yeah. to work in that environment? That's such a good question. Isn't it? <laughs> it's a brilliant question. And and um, can I can I put alongside it another question that sometimes people ask? Because I think they're kind of twins. And the other question is, isn't this career suicide? If I if I was to admit, like in a job interview, wouldn't I be asked by someone, by the way, are you a conscientious objector? And if I was to say yes, like how how would they give me the job? Right? They wouldn't. And if I became known as someone that was a conscientious objector wouldn't that be career suicide? So there's this sense in which, am I just saying I'm not suited to the job, right? And um, there are a number of, I mean, it's fascinating. I mean, th th this uh, viewer is really clearly seeing some of the kind of nuance of this. Uh, Mick and I feel very clear that it couldn't be a critical position if, we were, if it became a blanket part of our identity. We would not be endorsing the idea that someone would say, I am a conscientious subjector, here's the badge to show. But rather, some this has to be a case-by-case -case basis. Mm -hmm. So if a manager asked me at a job interview, are you a conscientious subjector? The only answer that I would give is that I look forward to discussing rigorously the use of all uh, uh, the Mental Health Act in all its forms, including forced pharmaceutical treatment with the rest of the team. And it's up to the manager to uphold my right to, to have that. So it's not an identity in that sense. And uh, yeah, addressing the question as it was kind of specifically asked, can you tell me it again? Can you say it again? Because I feel I like- I think, are they the best people or the worst people to be- That's right. I think this is one of the tragedies as yeah. currently things are, that, that as people who have a sense that this is against their moral system, their own identity, leave areas like the ward, what we do is we leave behind people who were perhaps less likely to want to raise those objections. And so we impoverish the, um, the decision making, and that isn't good for nursing, and it's certainly not good for the uh, people who've been admitted. So yeah, my, my belief is we, we need a diversity of views in every nursing team and um so yes yeah yeah i, I think sort of mickle as a you know a strong trade unionist like myself will kind of recognize that situation quite often in terms of uh you know individuals reps or members that raise concerns and then feel kind of you know bullied out of the place that often it's quite sad because you know managers are getting rid of critics who actually make places safer and better rather than talking through those criticisms and working how you can make the environment better. But obviously, quite often people feel threatened when uh, you've kind of challenged, especially if you're a leader or a manager, 
uh, and you know you, you're not willing to face that challenge and you kind of push back in an aggressive way. Uh, I don't know, Mick, if you wanted to add any more points to that. Well, yeah, I mean, I, I just wanted to, I'll come to that in two ticks, just the student nurse, the third year student who asked about what she could object to. One of the things that we mentioned in, in the paper is that there seems to have been over the years an unwritten right to conscientiously object to ECT. Yeah, so it's not formal, yeah. but in most places you'll yeah. find that if you say, I don't really want to be involved yeah. in this, especially as a student, yeah. you'll be allowed to quietly go away and do something else. Yeah. So that seems to be that there's a space yeah. for at least the debate, but the debate isn't happening there. It's sort of, yeah. it's all sort of under the radar. Yeah. I think I think Dave's right. There's, there's definitely mention in our paper of the idea that should this right become a formal right, yeah it cannot be divorced from what you might call employment relations and the trade unions or to have a big voice, a representative voice in how we take forward, how the practicalities would work. And that's why we, I think we started with this idea that, you know, our, our abolition democracy is actually, we want more democracy. Mm-hmm. We want that democratic voice of all concerned, all stakeholders, but especially staff. Mm-hmm in these crucial decisions about what we do and we want the resources alongside it so the resources to train people in a meaningful way in all the other skills that they'll need to run alongside a conscientious objection so the skills that allow you to stand off people when they're disturbed be with people when they're disturbed listen to them when they're incomprehensible and that's exhausting work, I think, but I think it's the bread and butter of, yeah. of mental health practice. But often the way we organize things, you know, like Jonathan's already said, squeezes out individuals who, who carry some of the, if you like the folklore of, of how to do that better. Yeah. And then if we immediately run for the needle and the holding and the pants down and the injection, we've obviated the need to use all those other skills. Now, I'm painting this in a black and white way. I think there's some great work going on around de-escalation, but it's happening in a way that's divorced from the last resort or the so-called last resort. And and some of our observations are that the idea of last resort is a myth in in quite a few places. Mm. And that, you know, we, we did an ethnography on 14 wards in the Northwest of England, and it was not uncommon to see forced injections being planned at the shift handover as a way of introducing the ordinary prescription. It wasn't a response to disturbed behaviour. It was like, we we let this person go without the meds for a few days, and now we're going to get our team together, our restraint team, and we're going to do it at 2pm when we've got as many staff as possible on the ward. So it's planned. It's not a last resort. Mm -hmm. So... Anyway, I've gone off the track, but yes, Dave, unions, collective voice, mm. democratic quality dialogue alongside all the other things like training, resources, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, I, I think the other thing that it's worth mentioning as well is whilst there's obviously the clauses with the NMC for things that you can consciously object to, there's also the fact that as a nurse, you have the right not to abuse people. So, you know, if you believe that what you're doing is abusive, then there would be a defence there to argue against that. 
Uh, and I'm just thinking about one of the examples would, well, three examples would be Winterbourne View, Walton Hall, Elder Tree Lodge, where, you know, people have been abused in care. And actually, you shouldn't have a defence of saying, well, that was custom and practice. That's how we treat people. You know, it's got to be defensible in terms of, you know, the behaviour that you're doing is appropriate and uh, you know, you're not abusing people. Yeah. Just a, a couple. Go on. Just, go on say, and let's not forget, right? We have an we have a personal relationship with a code of conduct, and if our employer is asking us to do things that are not uh, in keeping with our code of conduct, then they are not a suitable employer of a nurse, are they? Mm. So, like, yeah, we we have that uh, to fall back on uh, for sure. Yeah. I think, that, I think there's something about transparency as well, isn't there? When these examples of institutional care gone wrong, like Winterbourne View, happen, quite often it's because they're shut away, they're, they're closed off Definitely. from the world. Which takes me back to, you know, Jonathan's um, correct observation of the, you know, the roots of the idea of a conscientious objection being in, you know, the, the First World War period. And this was the... It was both the height of the the asylum period, you know, like closed institutions. It was also the birth of um, trade unions in, in, in mental health care as well in the very same places. And we, we did a really interesting history and community engagement project around this in, in the asylum in Preston. And we sort of argued that the care was possibly better in the 1870s than the 1970s when there was a huge scandal of abuse that was, and the people who blew the whistle were student nurses, and it took three years for the the authorities to actually take notice of the complaints that the nurses raised, and they were eye-watering examples yeah. of abuse, not run-of-the-mill yeah. stuff. Um, but conscience, the conscientious objectors in the First World War, they ran a risk of either being psychiatrized themselves, they were sent to the asylum as a patient, or they were sent to the front, they might have been given a non-combatant role, but they become they became psychiatric, psychiatrically unwell because of their experiences in the war, even as a non-combatant, or probably especially as a non-combatant because they got sent to the front. Mm. Um, and they, we found that in our sort of um, review of the asylum, the asylum in Preston, uh, Whittingham Asylum, we found a, a, a person who, for faith-based reasons, he wasn't a non-conformist preacher, but he was only 18 years old in 1918. Mm. Gets sent to the front, comes back with shell shock. Mm. He's admitted to his local asylum, which is Whittingham. He dies there in 1974. <laughs> you know, and... I, why am I telling you this? Because I think that this, when we took this to the public and we had discussions about contemporary mental health care based on people's experiences in the asylum system, yeah. the people in those groups, some of whom had been in services, some of them were staff and some of them were just members of the public at large, immediately made the connection with wider matters of conscience in psychiatric services. So they were saying... Are these the same sort of thing morally as the thing that drove this fella, John Law Coop, to object mm. to be in military service? And I think in the long run, we say yes. 
Mm. But we've narrowed it down to, to what we think is the most objectionable part of mental health nurse practice, which is forced pharmaceutical um, treatment. Mm. But I think, I think what it does tell you for sure is the pain that is inflicted on people who don't conform. Because one of the great things about nursing is, you know, we we can sometimes really hang together and, and being part of a ward team, especially, you are so dependent on your colleagues and you're, you, whether you like them or not, you've, you've formed part of a whole. But to fall outside that mm. is really hard. And whether people mean to or not, I think if you do object or if you do mm. move outside of what's accepted behaviour for a mental health nurse you will be punished one way or another or you will experience pain or dislocation or disenfranchisement or isolation yeah it's something i think that just needs to be borne in mind as well because it's being asked to do a lot as it is and absolutely conscience is something which has to come first but it is it's um it's not a cheap thing yeah yeah so that that issue is really core to 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 our case really maybe we haven't done justice no, no, I think it's, I think every nurse that hears this yeah. will know exactly what you're saying and exactly what the price would be mm. either way, to do it and to feel terrible or to not do it and yeah. feel worse. Yeah, I but also I think, think as well, you know, the, the sort of discourse that we're having now, this talk that we're having, yeah. is in some sense an attempt, it's a small attempt, mm. of moving the goalposts in the right direction. Yeah. And I think you could argue that from the time I did my training, which was in the 1980s, the actual goalposts for what is actually legitimate, what's allowed, mm. what's seen as right, mm. have moved in the other direction. Mm. You know, you, you could argue that there's actually more coercion, compulsion. Well, it's definitely more compulsion now than there ever was. Mm. And yet we've allegedly liberalised over the year, over the decades, over over the centuries, mental health legislation. Wards have become tougher places yeah. because you have people who are more acutely unwell, but you also have a huge pressure to have turnover. Mm. And so if you've got someone who sat there, in the past you could have someone who was able to maybe stabilise themselves. And it would always, it, you know, because I remember when yeah. I first started, we had people who came in, you know, because their CPM was on holiday. I mean, that's mm. not even fe- feasible to even consider now. Yeah, you know, this just popped in, and that's not how the service runs. But I'm really aware of the time, and I know Dave's got a few more questions, maybe. So if maybe you could ask all the questions together and let the guys choose which ones sort of stand out to them, David. Can you hear me? He's on mute. All right, I'll have a quick look and see if I've got them. But I Sorry, think, no, I was just having problems. I was a bit anxious, so I thought the live feed had failed, but uh, it seems to be fine. Uh, so just having a bit of kittens there. Uh, so, yeah, just a few more questions. Uh, Alfonso, controversial question, but Jonathan, are you saying that we are not educating future mental health nurses in bringing critical thinkers? Am I saying we're not? I'm delighted yeah. to say that I, I hope that we are. In fact, um, I find my students quite inspiring they they respond to some of the same some of the kind of critique and different um questioning of the uh, of the practices of mental health services in in the way that i remember them striking me when i first kind of began this journey of reading and thinking and they are so conscientious they that many of them are um, their values are deeply moving. So no, I, I, I do, 
I, I'm not a great, this is such an effort, a great lover of the Future Nurse curriculum as, as a whole, but I managed to find places within it, great opportunity, I think others do, and uh, my students certainly inspire me. Yeah. Uh, so, so yeah, uh, no, I'm very happy to say there's lots of um, very thoughtful and value-driven people coming into mental health nursing. Yeah, and I, I'd like to back that up. And I, I think I'm never, you know, always, well, for the better, I always find that, that the, you know, the, the current crop of students are amazing in terms of, um, you know, their values, their capacity for, for critical thought. And I think we do try and teach critical thinking, but we can't stop it happening anyway, even if we wanted to. We can't stop people having a conscience. So I think the real question is, what happens to these people? And part of our case is we feel these people are not best served by the services that we're booting them out into. And that, that is a it's it's not just a you know, this idea of a moral injury is a proper injury. We're hurting yeah. people. That's yeah. the thing. Mm. So this this like your know, call for action really is 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 trying to do something about that rather than just put up with it. And then Victory's added a question: Is medicalisation right in mental health services? Please. How long have you got? <laughs> About two minutes. <laughs> no. Thanks. No, it's not. And the very the very term tells you already that something's happened. The thing that's happened is not that something is just medical, but it has been made to to seem as if it is that or only that. No, absolutely. No critical thinker can be happy with, with, with medicalization. They can be happy that certain things can be helped through the practices of medicine. And medicine, by the way, isn't just one thing. It's a bit too easy to, to, to say that medicine is one thing and therefore we need other things. Good medicine, I think, has been biopsychosocial just as much as good nursing has been. But, but we know that in psychiatry, reductionist and medicalizing practices have held sway deeply for, for some time. That's not controversial in the least. In any nursing team, you'll find people that would agree with that. So no, it's not a good thing. It's uh, the more one goes down that way, the less science has got anything to do with what is being said. And um, yeah, the more politically dodgy it is. So no, medicalization, very poor. Well, and just before I hand back to Nikki, obviously got to say the most important part of the night. Uh, Gavin said, fantastic discussion, really enjoying this. Victor's agreed and said that she's really grateful to Mick and Jonathan, but also to Nikki and me for organising it. So we've got, we've got to finish my bit on that. So back over to you, Nikki, to round up. Okay, so I would like to come to you both and ask, you know, where do you, we can see where this idea is coming from. We can see the possibilities that it has, but where do you think it could go? What do you think the end point of this could be? Well, if I was to share my screen, I'm not going to, but I, I've got on one of my screens, on one of my tabs, many tabs that's open. I've got the NMC page open about conscientious objection with the two things that I'd like to see a third. Mm -hmm. I'd like to see a third thing. Weirdly, maybe I'm going to sound like a conspiracy theorist. I'm certainly not that. But since Nick and I started talking about this, that page has been updated three times. The wording has been changed and uh, I'm not quite sure why that should be the case. So I know that it's not set in stone. 
And uh, it seems to have got slightly tighter since we began talking about conscientious objection. Mm. I would like it to be re rewritten to in include this um, issue. So I suppose Mick and I are thinking about how one then takes the paper that we've written, blog posts that we've written, discussions that we've had like this one, conscience, uh, conference papers that we've given and discussions, how we then now start to take that to the NMC and present them with a case. That That's next on my mind. Yeah and, how, there. yeah, and how we might roll other people in with that. So it's it's a bit more like a movement. And and I suppose the, you know, in the paper, we write about a wild undercommons, which is this democratic substrata of speech and talk and engagement that goes on underneath the appeal for a more democratic world. And I, I think the if you're looking for a wild undercommons, the critical mental health nursing website that Jonathan mainly organizes is, is one of those things. It's it's a commons, it's anyone can have to say. It's a bit wild, but in a good way. And it's it's about, you know, if you, in, to answer the question, you know, transformational change is is the big ask, isn't it? But we'll settle for incremental change on the way to it. So, know if if needs be and i think the the place to go for ideas or to put your own ideas in around transformational change in psychiatry are these groups that are already established with criticality at their heart and um, i think this this tv show over, over the years is, is is an exemplar of that the critical mental health nurse website is another one and i think you know trade unions possibly not because they're not I don't. I think the left hasn't quite caught on to the idea that mental health is is a politic, you know, has has politics in it. Um, yeah. But I do think they have great potential to be part of this sort of mm. wild undercommons. Mm -hmm. um, and and once you get into those more established organisational forms like unions, you're breaking out from the undercommons. It's becoming the actual mainstream. Mm. So university spaces as well. You can almost say what you like in a university classroom. Almost. Not completely, but almost. And despite the tendency in universities that's that's happening to close down some talk, they're not watching all the time. So in your in your mental health nursing classrooms, you can get these debates going. Say, what what do we think together? So so that I think that's all I think we'd be looking for is big change if we can have it, but small change if we can get there. But but that's got loads of people involved in the in the making of it. Absolutely. I think that's a brilliant um, note to finish on as well. Um, so I guess what people are saying is have a look, find find people who you can have this discussion with. Don't be afraid to think. Don't be if you're feeling quite isolated in a team, find people who you can share those ideas with. Because you can't be a good nurse if you're completely alienated from yourself. You have to be able to live with yourself in your practice. Otherwise it's not practice anymore. It's it's torture, isn't it? It's a horrible experience. And we don't want you to burn out. We don't want you to feel that you can't contribute to the way that things can be better. So have a look at the critical mental health nurses. We'll put we'll put the um, we'll tweet the um, link out for that. But also find people who um, are a good community of practice. You don't have to agree with each other, but it's how you talk to each other and, and how you start to have those discussions. So thank you very very much to our brilliant guests. Um, Dave, we'll be ready to finish now. So thank you very much, guys. Good night all. Good night. See you next time. Thank you.